You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, I'd invite you to find your scriptures and let's open to the book of Romans. Book of Romans, once again, find your way there. I'm glad to have my parents here today, Dell and Nancy, and our Facebook viewership is down by probably 75% with them here. So they are like the top Facebook viewers. So if anybody else is watching, great, but the fans are here, so that's, that's cool. So, but it's great. It's very special to have them here. So uh, we've got a picture as you're on your way to Romans 8, verse 18, we're going to read from, but this comes from... Uh, Gemma, I believe we got that right. This came from Gemma. Here she's got, kind of to help anchor us back, first verse really of Romans, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is a great truth and great promises in that one and two two verses there that begin this chapter, and we are working our way through it, and uh, even next week maybe a little slow through this, but it's okay to go slow and consider what is before us, and we've got quite a passage before us this morning. So if you're in Romans 8, and thank you, Gemma, for that picture, I'm going to read in verse 18 through 25. Maybe many of you will see this as a section in your Bible. We're going to read that and then think on it. Let's listen to God's Word. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let me pray once again. Lord, as we think about your word, as we look into it, as I preach it, Lord, may we we don't want to go forward without saying, Lord, would you help us? Bring us understanding by your spirit. Work amongst us. Work in in our heads and in our hearts that the truths of this passage would encourage us as we groan to wait and to wait on you alone. So, Lord, encourage us as we dive in and lead by your Spirit, and we pray this in your name. Amen. This is actually going to be the second time in this past year, not 2023, but in the calendar, if you think of a year ago that I've preached this passage, most of you will not have heard it uh, before, and I'm not using the same sermon, but last year, about this time, a little later into February, 
Hannah's dad, Howard, uh, died from where we get Peter Howard Croker. Her dad, Howard, died um, last year in February, and so it was at his funeral in Kansas that I did the preaching, and it came out of this particular passage. It's a passage, I think, that can fit the mood of a Christian funeral, and I'm not preaching a funeral today, but there's this groaning that's hopeful. There's a, there's a hopeful groaning, and I think it's timely even for us. One, we, we come here in our study expositionally going through the Scriptures, but it's also helpful in that we see here that the Bible speaks to reality. I've probably said that before, that there's reality in the Scripture. It, it doesn't just tell us of victory and peace, though it does tell us that. It also describes pain and suffering. Really, the worst suffering upon our Savior on the cross. It presents real characters, real characters who greatly erred in their lives. They were not superhuman characters. But then it presents these in light of an infinitely majestic and supreme and wonderful God and merciful, whose mercies are new every morning. And so in our text today, there's, there's two realities going on. A reality of present sufferings, kind of a present groaning, and yet in this same passage it speaks to a glory yet to come, a hope worthy of waiting eagerly for. As Gemma showed us here, chapter 8 proclaims, there's now no condemnation for those in Christ. We we have been set free. The, The Spirit of God dwells in us. And we are, as we looked at even last week, we are those in Christ. We are children of God. But Doug Moo, he asked this in part. He says, how can Christians maintain hope for eternal life in the face of sufferings and death? How can those who have been set free from the law of sin and death die? How can God's very own dearly loved children suffer? Yes, do not these contradict or at least call into question the reality of Paul's phrase here, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Jesus. The exposition of the future glory to be enjoyed by the believer is necessary to answer this objection. Read that again. The exposition of the future glory to be enjoyed by the believer is necessary to answer this objection. In a sense, what Paul is saying in verses 18, and then he takes it beyond to verse 30, is that the Christian must go the way of his Lord. As for Jesus' glory only followed suffering, so for the Christian. There are these two twin realities, suffering and glory. So let's head into our text at verse 18. It really serves like a title page, like a summary of what's going to follow here. In that present suffering pales in comparison to future glory. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Just note again that time. It's presently. It's now. That present suffering characterizes the lives of the children of God. Christ suffered. And as we saw last week, as so shall we. Paul, in chapter 5 of Romans, he's already kind of laid out a little bit of a sufferology. Think of theology, and that's not my word, but a a study of suffering. What is suffering? And even in chapter 5, verse 3, he said, 
we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. That's an odd phrase for the world to grab hold of. Knowing this, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. But a question here on this, the sufferings, what kind of sufferings are these? Is, th- is this solely persecution, that kind of suffering, or is it more than that? And it would seem here that this word for suffering, it's a general term to include various types of sufferings and afflictions. Uh, one commentator, Leon Morris, he says this, there is, there is suffering that is the direct result of our sinning, and there is suffering that we endure for Christ's sake, suffering that arises directly from our Christian profession in a world that rejects Christ. So there's that. And then he says, but beyond that, there is suffering that arises simply because we are in this imperfect world. Paul is realistic There is no reason to think that Christians will be free from troubles in this present life. And so Doug Moo also, a commentator I've used, you'll hear again, would agree, these these encompass, these sufferings encompass the whole gamut of suffering, including things such as illness or bereavement or hunger, financial reverses, and death itself. But then these present sufferings are not worth, they they have no value up against this glory that's to be revealed. The glory that is to be revealed to us. And again, a question, what is this glory? A couple scriptures, Philippians 3, verse 21, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this of Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Or Colossians 3, verse 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So here it's Christ. It's Christ our very life, and it's connected to glory. Now, God's glory is supreme. We just talked about our mission of the church. One is that we exalt the Lord. His glory is supreme. So it's not about us receiving glory, but I think if we're fellow heirs with Christ, which is verse 17, if we're fellow heirs, then then there's a sense of sharing in this glory. Jesus puts it this way. He's got a prayer in John 17 for those that would believe the message of him through the apostles. And he he says this, the glory, he's praying for them, So Jesus praying to his Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Here kind of this with unity together. Verse 23 of John 17, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So you've given them, may they be with me, fellow heirs, I think, here and there, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Our future glory, I think the glory to be revealed, I think it's this final, perfect unity, oneness with God, not us becoming God, but our our unity with Him, that He is finally and fully ours, And we are finally and fully in Him. His future glory. 
But to lay this out, Paul turns to creation and into verses then 19 really through verse 22. Let me just look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation itself, we've seen this in chapter 1 here of Romans, it reveals God's eternal power and divine nature. But, but here it's waiting. It's waiting in anticipation and it's waiting for a revealing that of the sons of God. You might say, who are the sons of God? Romans 8.14 answers, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So creation here is waiting for the children of God to be finally and fully revealed. But again, questions come up. What does this mean? I want to take, as I explain here, a few looks at it. I think verses then 20 through 22, they're going to help us along in that explanation. What is this revealing of sons of God, creation? But before that, let me just add this. If you just think about creation, think about creation itself. It is all an act of God. It's, it's His creation. Uh, John 1.3 even says all things were made through Him. It's talking about the Word, the Word being Jesus Christ. All of creation is made through Christ. I don't think we disagree at that. Okay, creation, yes, God created everything. It's through Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that Christ's creation should long for His children to be revealed. It's, it's a Christ-built creation, and it's waiting for these children to be revealed. And so Christ's creation, in a way, it, it longs for Christ's bride, the church, the sons of God, children of God. Okay, but then on to verses 20 through 22. I'll just read them as a chunk here again to... Help us see them. For Verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And it's in this early part of Genesis that we see the beginnings of this bondage to corruption. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel. They sin against God. They disobey His command. And creation itself is brought into corruption. And God says this to Adam. He's kind of the fountainhead of this. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Paul lays out here creation itself. It's subject to futility, purposelessness. Ecclesiastes calls it vanity. I think that word is used quite a bit in that book. There's a vanity. Even the word for corruption uh, that you see in verse 21, this bondage to corruption, it means the breakdown of organic matter, deterioration, in the world of nature. Things just wear out. Metal gets fatigued. We know this well around here. Cars rust. I'm amazed at new cars rust around here that you see. Our bodies wear out. They decay. And there's what appears to be just kind of this constant drain of decay in the world we live in. One translation of verse 
22 says that all creation lets out a groan in common pain. Groaning. And here's that, that idea, verse 22, that the pains of childbirth. It's fitting on a dedication Sunday to think about childbirth and those pains. And women, you know those have had children, those labors and there's pains. Uh, in those cases, it's pain with a, to quote a seminary, pain with a purpose in that. But I think there's also, we're going to see that here, even in creation. As we think about this question, maybe skipped over, but verse 20, you've got a phrase in there that talks about, um, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The question in this text is, who's the him? Who subjected creation to groaning and corruption? Some say that's Adam. He yea, he disobeyed, that's, it's from him. Some would say it's Satan. And yet within the subjection, there's a purpose, isn't there? There's, there's, the purpose is, it's a hope, hopeful purpose. It's a purpose of hope. And so many would see, and I would see here, I've actually turned my, my little H into a big H because of him as God. That God subjected creation to corruption because of Adam's sin, and yet there's a goal and there's a hope towards freedom. Leon Morris writes this. He says, There's no reason to think of Adam or of Satan acting in hope for the future of the race, but hope is characteristic of God, who may indeed be called the God of hope. Okay, creation subjected to bondage, corruption, and yet in hope? These two together? I think one prime example, one principle laid out here is something we find in the last chapter of Genesis 50. You might be familiar with this. I hope you are. It's a helpful place. But Joseph there, remember Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt. There was a famine in the land. They've come to Egypt. He's revealed himself. And they're afraid. Now that Joseph sees them, he's going to retaliate because of what they did to him. They did not treat him well. threw him in the well. And he was sold off then to slay, uh, as a slave into Egypt. And so they're scared. And yet Joseph says this, and I think it forms a bit of a background for this him who subjected to corruption in hope. There Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, Joseph says to his brothers, I will provide for you and your little ones. Says, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There is evil to be sure. The curse has come upon, lastingly, upon this creation. There's decay. There's vanity. And yet, within that, at the same time, God's glory will not be shaken or disturbed. So God's glory and hope, it shines bright in the backdrop of a creation in futility and purposelessness, and frustration. And all of creation awaits, I think, a new glory, and all really eventually being, as we see in the, at the end of Revelation, restored, renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, John Murray writes this about creation. He writes the creation, quote, was not consigned to this evil condition apart from God's design of ultimate deliverance. 
and its present state, therefore, is not a finality. What we see around us is not final. He goes on. In other words, hope conditioned the act of subjection and continues to condition the vanity and corruption imposed upon it. That is that God is sovereign even over the groaning of creation. And as we come then to verse 23, now Paul moves then to our own inward groaning, saying there, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's two phrases here just worth paying attention to. One is we groan inwardly, and the second, we wait eagerly. Creation groans in waiting, but so do we who have the Spirit. We we groan even though we're already saved. We already have a place with God. We've already received even, as we saw in verse 15, we've received adoption as sons. We're justified. We're declared righteous. We can cry out to God as our Abba, Father, already. And yet, we know that we're not in this the true, the final glory that will one day be. We, we groan as we live. We live in a sin-cursed world. And we deal with our own remaining sin within us. We groan. We grieve at loss of life. We groan at the culture that's saying, this wrong thing that used to be wrong, it's now right. And the right thing, now that's wrong. We groan there. We groan on a day where the legislature of Minnesota says, you know what, abort a baby at any stage. And I think as I read those things, as you think on those things, there's a groaning. Do you groan? I think all Christians with Christ within, we groan inwardly. And yet we wait eagerly. In the midst of this groaning, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, this redemption of our bodies. We're already adopted, and yet we're not what we fully and finally will be. Two passages of Scripture, I'll just read them for you. You can look them up if you'd like. John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. Jesus puts it this way. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, there's childbirth language again. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour, her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's Jesus in John 16. Paul is also helpful in 2 Corinthians, near the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. He says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is Paul. We see the same one writing Romans. We see inklings of this in 2 Corinthians in his other writing. He says, As we look to the things that are seen... Oh, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. As we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, he says this, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we wait. As the end of verse um, at the end of verse 23 here, we wait for this redemption of our bodies. This redemption could mean a release from a captive condition or deliverance. And another question, redeemed for what? What redemption? What, what are we redeemed? What are we given freedom? What are we delivered to? Is this just, well, I'm free. I can spend it on my own self-indulgence. Now get, it's all about me, so I'm, I'm free to be me now. That's what my redemption is. No. The, the glory and joy of the redemption of our bodies is that it's what we're groaning after. I think that's in the believer, it's true Christ-likeness. It's, it's the glory of a freedom of worship that we have only, I think in this life, we've only sampled in the smallest way. Maybe some of you are members of Costco. I love Costco. I don't love everything about Costco, but... One of the highlights of Costco is the samples. Maybe your Sam's Club. I don't know. Compare it. We were members there. I don't know how their samples are. But, you know, uh, it used to be that the cheapy in me, that I'll say the Mennonite in me, that's my back, some of my background is, you know, hey, there's a free meal, you know. But rule in our family, one sample. No, no getting second samples. That's just a rule. That's not a command of the Lord. So, but they're samples. But those samples, they're usually usually good. We had one bad one this last week. It was like, that's terrible. <laughs> but they're usually really good, but they're just a sample. It's not the whole pizza or whatever fried thing they're making that's so good or whatever. There was dark chocolate this week. It was so, but just a little bit of it. It's not the whole thing. I think we get a taste when we gather to worship and we read the Word and the Spirit works within us and we worship here I think we've got a sample, a sampling of what it will be one day, this future glory, this future redemption when we are set free to worship God fully and finally in joy forever. We get a taste of it here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We're tasting Him now. Even though we wrestle and we groan, Lord, this sinful, I worship here and I'm off in sin here. There's a sample of it, but we wait eagerly for that day. This is not what finally will be. Well, the last verses, 24 and 25, really form a conclusion to this paragraph and it's going to help us conclude today. Let me just read those in their entirety. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in the midst of present suffering and future glory, we hope. We hope for what we do not yet see. And it made me think of Jesus saying to Thomas 
In John chapter 20, he says, Have you believed, Thomas? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I searched for the word hope in the New Testament, and I found uh, 52 times. I went back. You can search hope, New Testament. That 52 times where hope is used, and it's used in relation to salvation and eternity. So hope is a major theme. We've already seen it, Romans 5, Romans 12, verse 12. Paul's going to admonish us even. He's going to say, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's Romans 12, 12. And so Leon Morris has commented, I think elsewhere, he said, but in the section, he said, the cosmic fall is not the last word. The last word is with hope. Two questions. Do you groan inwardly? Do you groan inward? Now, perhaps your groaning, it's really a conviction. Your groaning is a conviction of your own sinfulness, a conviction, conviction of your own unrighteousness and unworthiness to call upon a holy God. Say, Lord, have mercy, and I'm, I'm convicted, and I'm groaning in that way. Can I just encourage you, let that groaning lead you once again to the cross where Jesus suffered and died for all who would look to Him for salvation. So look to Him. Put your faith in Him. Groan towards Christ. But then number two, are you waiting eagerly in hope? And perhaps your groaning is what your eyes simply just see around you. We're so taken. Our eyes just see it. And we see this world. We see our own sin. Are we waiting eagerly in hope? The last phrase, the last phrase of verse 25 tells us how we wait. We wait with patience. It's the idea here of endurance. You could say we wait with enduring patience or perseverance would be a word. We wait upon the Lord in patient endurance. We wait in hope. I want to close with an article. Um, I forget when. I, I think I found this while I was preparing for the funeral uh, last year. An article by Tim Challies. He's a blogger. Um, writes different things, but th- the title is As If God Ever Made an Atlantic Wide Enough. As, as If God Ever Made an Atlantic Wide Enough. Here's what he writes. He says, As we go through times of suffering and sorrow, we inevitably inevitably come into contact with those who would seek to comfort us. Some offer true help and true hope, while others, unfortunately, do not. In this short but sweet quote, Theodore Kyler, or Coulier, reflects on what we need most in our times of affliction. I'm going to read that quote to you. It's a little bit, it's two paragraphs long. Hopefully you can listen along. I can tell you where to find this later, but he says this. There are some of us who have known what it is to drink bitter draughts of affliction and to have the four corners of our house smitten by a terrible sorrow. At such times, how hollow and worthless were many of the stereotyped prescriptions for comfort. Quote, time must do its work was one of them. As if time, he writes, could bring back the dead or cruelly eradicate the beloved image from the memory. Travel is another of these 
quack recommendations for a wounded spirit. He's got quite the language, doesn't he? Just as if, and here's what he says. Somebody would say, well, travel, that'll help you with your grief. He says, just as if God had ever made an Atlantic wide enough to carry us out of the reach of heartbreaking misery. Wretched comforters are they all. The suffering heart heeds not the voice of such charmers, charm they ever so charm they never so wisely. He says, never, never have I been able to gain one ray of genuine consolation until I lifted my eyes unto the hills from whence cometh the almighty help. As soon as I have begun to taste of God's exceeding great and precious promises, my strength has begun to revive. As soon as his everlasting arm got hold around me, the burden grew lighter. Yea, it carried me and the load likewise. God opened to me paths of usefulness, which were in the line of his service, and also of blessings to my fellow men. And so help flowed down to me from the hills, like the streams that make music from the precipices to one who climbs the Wenzern Alp, and I don't know where the Wenzern Alp is, but it's that idea of this peace of God flowing down, precious peace of God that encourages us and our hearts and to be an encouragement to others. As we inwardly groan, may we wait eagerly in the hope of God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reality of this passage and the reality of your word. Lord, showing both and at the same time the sinfulness of men, even good men, men we would, men and women we say, oh, they're good, and yet there's wickedness and there's evil not far apart from that. Even Paul in chapter 7 has described his own heart and his waywardness, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And yet, Lord, our hope is in you. Lord, a hope now that we own in the already and a hope in the not yet. Lord, encourage us with this passage. Encourage those especially today that are groaning in unique and very heavy ways today. Lord, that they would see no travel, no time. Your promises, Lord, are what they need. Your word, who you are, found through your word, would comfort and console them. And then, Lord, guide us to be an encouragement to those groaning and to our own groaning hearts that we look to you as we groan within, that we look with eager hearts, Lord, not not believing what we see around us, seeing that, seeing the groaning of the world, and yet inwardly by hope, hoping for that future day, that one day in your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.